Blog Talk Radio. Morning, this is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. The secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. Good morning, good morning. This is attorney Vince Davis. And we are on with Get Your Kids Back Now. Um, We're going to have a guest in the second half hour of the show, uh, Terry Greenstein. Terry is a former CPS social worker with, um, I I believe it was Riverside County. And uh, currently, Terry has his own business where he acts as a consultant and and an expert witness in cases where people have juvenile cases trying to get their children back or trying to get the children with the family. Or he um, appears as an expert witness in a civil rights case. Um, He recently was an expert for a civil rights case we had against social workers um, in Kern County. Kern County, California. We had a case against some social workers in Kern and also sued the county of Kern. Um, I was just told by one of the attorneys in my office this week that that case has settled after Terry had given his uh, expert witness deposition testimony um, last week or the week before. So he's very knowledgeable about um, policies and procedures. And he's going to be talking about an interesting topic this week. So before we get to him, I want to talk about some of the things that have been going on in uh, my cases personally. Um, Not too long ago, I started a case, a trial, up in Sonoma County, and I'm in the middle of trial. Um, it is a 366.21E hearing where my client, the mother, excuse me, my client, the father, my client, the father is trying to get his ch- uh, child back out of uh, foster care. Um, <clears throat> it's always interesting to do trials in other counties. And I think I catch a lot of people off guard um, because they're not necessarily used to doing trials and everybody keeps, you know, just accepts what the social worker says in the report. So we're not finished with the trial, but in that case, um, I put the social worker on the stand to cross-examine the social worker. And uh, it was interesting um, to challenge the social worker's conclusions and ask her about, you know, things that she had written in the report. One of the issues is um, placement of the children or the child with relatives and family friends, nephrons. And... 
the social worker testified, you know, during my cross-examination that she wasn't a expert in placement of children, which was kind of interesting um, because she's supposed to be an expert in the placement of children. But you know, as things would go, um, we finished the social worker's testimony, and we're going back to do the testimony of my clients' uh, witnesses, and that's going to include the services social worker. It's going to include the police officer um, who made a report. It's going to include my client, and his service providers. They also wanted my client to take a 730 evaluation um, to have, to see if he is emotionally or mentally unstable. Now, I'm at a, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or any type of mental health professional, but, you know, I've met my client, talked to him many times, uh, you know, spent the day with him. And I can tell you that, you know, he's just a normal guy who's a little bit upset that they took his child from him based upon something that the mother did. Um, in this particular case, there was alleged domestic violence by the mother while and and I think these were the facts. I wasn't the attorney originally, but while the mother was holding the child in her arms, uh, she shot two or three times at the father with a handgun. Uh, the mother is being criminally prosecuted, but for some reason they think that uh, my client is somehow responsible for being shot at uh, while the mother was holding the baby. Uh, I'm not sure there was much he could do at the time, uh, according to him, he was running away, you know, fearing for his life because he was being shot at with a handgun. But of course, you know how CPS is, they can twist that into him being negligent or um, being a risk or a danger to the child. So we're going to see how this trial goes. Uh, I think... I have the judge thinking about certain things, if not return. At least I have him thinking about the uh, relative placement option because a couple of the witnesses that had come to the hearing, I think there were three of them. They were relatives, two relatives and a nephrom, a family friend, who are all able to take care of the children or the child. And in this particular case, the social worker testified that she had only interviewed one of them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Had only interviewed one of them and that she was not acceptable. I interviewed that same relative, and I'm not sure why she thought this person wasn't um, acceptable. Uh, she lives in the community. Uh, she's retired, and she has no criminal background. So I'm not sure why the social worker found that person to be not appropriate. The social worker did testify, as I mentioned earlier, that 
you know, this particular relative was, um, I mean, that she was not an expert regarding placement. The other two, um, one was a relative, one was actually the uncle. Um, he lived in or lives in Las Vegas. Um, he's the owner of a few businesses. Um, he has FBI clearance for one of those uh, businesses. Um, I think he's a former um, high-ranking military veteran. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if the agency or the court doesn't want to place with him. Um, You know, a lot of people think, well, what, you know, do you have to have an ICPC from the state of Nevada approving him as a placement? And the answer is, in this case, we don't because this uncle has the means to move back to the county, to California, to live in a home, uh, which he owns. Um, he just asked the renter to to leave, and he helped the renter get another place, but he moved into his home in California, and he has told the social workers – um, that, you know, he's ready, willing, and able to care for the child. Um, for some reason, they're kind of ignoring him, not sure why, um, which c- turns out to be, I think in this case, a really, really big mistake for the county this, because this gentleman has all types of um, political connections um, in the state and federal government and he has called to complain about this social worker and uh, this county, Sonoma County. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, it, it sometimes you know, makes me scratch my head when social workers want to just ignore relatives that obvious can take the, obviously can take the child. You know, it almost becomes one of those things where I think I get the feeling that the social worker who has had words with my client is punishing my client for not being respectful or, you know, kind of uppity in the situation. So we'll see what happens with that case. The, The trial continues in a couple of weeks in Sonoma County, and we go to our case in chief and, you know, my witnesses. Um, I ask the <clears throat> the judge after the county had rested for a 350C motion. So if you all look at um, Welfare and Institutions Code Section 350C, uh, you can make a motion at the end of the counties and the minors council at the end of their case in chief and ask tell the judge, well, they haven't met their burden of proof and that you should rule in my favor. The interesting thing is there was quite extensive argument on that motion from all sides, and the judge didn't make a decision yet, although he did did set another trial date. um, I'm hoping that he will have a chance to review the evidence that has been placed so far <clears throat> and um, you know, make a determination on whether we should win the case without having to put forward one witness. So we'll see what happens on the next trial date. I'll keep you posted.
Now, there's something else I want to talk about because I noticed it in three new cases in my office this week. Here's the general scenario. In February and in March of 2019, three couples who don't know each other um, all got into a domestic violence altercation. One was during the second week of February, one was during the third week of February, one was during the week of, first week of March. And in every case, <clears throat> three different social workers investigated for at least a month, made no determination about um, taking the children into DCFS custody, and then in May, because we're in May, each of the families gets a call that on two of the cases that the children were going to be taken away from the parents. And in the third case, <clears throat> the social worker took the child away from the father, left the kids with the mother, thank goodness, <clears throat> but told the father he had to move out. <clears throat> now, what always surprises me is that <clears throat> something that happened a few months ago um, is being used to take the children two or three months later. You know, and if you read the code section under Welfare and Institutions Code Section 319, um, you know, that's not supposed to happen in many of the cases. So I, on one of the cases, I happened to go to court to represent the father. And it presented some very interesting facts. In this case, there's a domestic violence, an alleged domestic violence incident between the mother and father. In February, early February, the social worker investigates the case, and I think suggests, but does not require, you know, the father to get an anger management, domestic violence counseling, that type of thing, and he does it. And he's continuing to live with the mother and the two children. And for whatever reason, as the weeks go by, almost three months later, the social workers decide to make him move out of the house, and they file a juvenile dependency case. And we go to court, and there's an extensive uh, detention report that's prepared by the social worker justifying or trying to justify that you know, uh, the father should be required to stay out of the house and that the mother should be admonished, you know, not to be around the father and that type of thing. Well, there was a detention hearing, and before the hearing, we had a sidebar, and it became obvious to me that the judge had read everything in the detention report. And, um, you know, she was very familiar with the facts as presented by the social worker. And 
during the conference, the judge asked me, would I object if she let the father back in the home but made orders that he do certain things, you know, uh, parenting, domestic violence, anger management, that, you know, that type of thing. And I said, absolutely not. I, I don't uh, object to any of that. So, you know, we had the hearing. This county made, you know, their very strong and outraged argument about the father not being allowed to move in the home. And the judge said, you know, she was going to allow him to move back in the home and made some very good points. On the day that the father, the, the social worker came out to kick the father out of the house, in essence, detain the children from the father, father was on his way to his anger management class. And after they took the kids, he still went to his anger management class. You know, it was also noted that why would the department know about this domestic violence event and then three months later decide to detain the children from the father? Like, and, and during that period, he gets into all of these different services to remedy the situation. So that was also a question mark. You know, in other words, the department must not have um, really been serious about what they were doing or, or the danger, which leads me to a question after I saw two more similar cases come into my office with, you know, one-time domestic violence, one-time, you know, months go by or weeks go by before they take the children away from the parents. And the question becomes, is there some kind of quota in detaining children? Why would you detain a child or children from a parent three months after an incident when you've let him live with the children all of this time and he had started services to remedy the situation? No new incidences of domestic violence between the original incident in February to May. So why would you do that other unless unless there was some type of financial reward? Now, it's always been my theory that the $70 billion plus budget, federal budget for these types of cases, gives counties incentives and states incentives to get involved with families where there's really no need to, other than you know, we want to give you services so that we can build the federal government and get more money for our department. You know, before I became a lawyer, I was a certified public accountant with the office, the Los Angeles office of the international accounting firm of Deloitte Haskins and Sales. Today, it just goes by the name of Deloitte. And in the LA office, one of the biggest, biggest clients was the LA County, the governmental entity. And one of the things that I learned about governmental accounting, which is a whole beast upon itself, is 
that governmental agencies are run like other businesses. Their goal is to make profit, just like any business. So if you look at the Department of Children and Family Services in Los Angeles County or any CPS organization, you know, you think that their primary, primary goal is to help children and to protect children and to um, help families. Now, I see that in many cases that that's what they're trying to do. Okay? I, I do see that. You know, there is such a thing called child abuse. It does happen. But in many cases, I see I see them run by decisions made by the departments based upon money. And I don't even think that the field super, uh, social workers realize this. They're trained by supervisors to go out and do God's work and protect children. But they get a little overzealous sometimes, and the only benefit in my mind is money. It's the money that the county can make in getting involved in every family that they can. Now, personally, I'm a, you know, I'm a liberal Democrat. And I know I sound like a conservative Republican when I talk about governmental intervention. But I do see what my Republican colleagues mean and say about this governmental intervention stuff. You know, um, the department wants to get involved in your in your family's uh, life if they suspect child abuse or if there has been child abuse. Um, but it's not always necessary to take the case to court. And I only think these cases sometimes go to court because of financial considerations. So there I said it. Uh, that is my personal belief after practicing in this area a few decades. Um, but, you know, reasonable minds may differ. I was in Ventura County where a judge said from the bench she doesn't believe that social workers and the agency there do anything uh, because of financial considerations. And I guess the flip side of that was um, – you know, uh, where they're protecting children. So reasonable minds may differ, but I digress. Going back to the case, um, I, I was able to convince the judge to let the father move back in. And she did make orders, um, you know, that protect the children, the child. And, you know, I asked for the court to order the department to consider um, closing the case with what's called a WIC 301. You can Google that contract. I have subsequently been, and the judge did order that, but I have subsequently been told um, by my client who has talked to the social worker that they will not be ordering a WIC 301 contract or they'll not be recommending. Now, that doesn't mean that the judge still can't do it him or herself. Um, but if you're going to have a case that's, you know, you're scratching your head, why is this case even in the juvenile court system? 
Google Welfare and Institutions Code Section 301 and um, find out how to get a case dismissed and closed uh, with what they call informal supervision. I want to tell you uh, quickly before Terry calls in, because I just got a message that he will be calling in at 8.30. I wanted to tell you about a case where we had in federal court fighting to sue um, a couple social workers and the county of Los Angeles. This related out of, uh, arises from a case where DCFS took children from the family, kept them for several months, um, and there was a trial in the juvenile court, and the trial judge ruled in favor of the social workers. But one of the parents appealed, and the Court of Appeal took it, I think, as both parents appealing, and reversed everything that the social worker, um, that the uh, judge had found, and ordered the children immediately re to return to the parents. Uh, the parents found me, wanted to file a civil rights lawsuit, and we did. Um, initially, if I recall correctly, the social worker's private defense attorney, a very good firm, um, tried to get the case thrown out. And I think the judge said no. Case goes on, and prior to trial, a few months prior to trial, the county made a motion for summary judgment. Now, summary judgment means, hey, judge, there's no material issue of fact, and this case shouldn't go to trial before a jury, because who knows what a jury would decide. Um, we recently had oral argument on that case, and we wrote a you know very good opposition to the summary judgment motion. And you know, um, I don't know the defense attorney, but you know, have had interactions with her over the last 20 years on cases similar to this, um, you know, different cases. And I didn't get the impression that she thought she had a chance uh, on the summary judgment motion, but she was going to try it anyway, and you know, that's what she's supposed to do. Well, lo and behold, the judge rules in their favor. Now. Unfortunately, this does happen on occasion where the judge decides, um, you know, against your client and you don't get to go to trial. So I talked to the client about the case, and we are going to appeal the case um, to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. I don't know if you folks have been listening to or watching what's happening in the news with all of the very conservative federal judges that are being appointed to the bench. And I think, you know, sometimes, uh, well, yeah, sometimes federal judges rule differently depending on their background, their experiences, you know, what they think or about your case and and that's their prerogative that's their job that's why they're wearing the black robes and you know they've been appointed um judges uh 
the way you know our constitution and our laws say they should be appointed. So they're you know they're viable they're viable federal judges who are making rulings legitimately making rulings uh, the way they see fit based upon the law and the facts. But I can tell you that it does make a difference in my experience the whether the judge is a conservative or whether the judge is liberal. Uh, and in my opinion, it makes a difference in the outcome in these types of civil rights cases. So traditionally, people fighting against CPS are um, traditionally conservative. They're Republican, and they are against governmental intervention. But the sword cuts both ways. <clears throat> if you get in front of a conservative judge and you're a plaintiff in a civil rights case, you might, might not fare um, as good as if you were in front of a liberal um, judge, a, a federal judge with a liberal background. So if you didn't think that whoever's president can, can't shape the federal judiciary, um, you would be incorrect in my opinion. So it is important who is appointing judges. It is important their background um, because they will shape the the way cases are ruled upon. Federal judges are appointed for life. They have tremendous power. That is what our Constitution, that is the way our Constitution was set up. So you know, when you are voting uh, for your uh, senators and your, uh, your House of Representatives and your president, um, maybe you might want to take that into consideration. Maybe you don't. It's up to you. But as I say at the beginning of every show, the ballot box is the real power in this country. The ballot box. Your vote. So if you don't like the way things are, you got to get out and vote and make changes. If you like the way things are, you got to get out and vote and you got to make changes. All right. So our guest is on the line. Let me bring him on. Terry, how are you? Good morning. Good morning, Dennis. How are you? Doing fine. Doing fine. Um, I don't know if you were listening at the beginning of the show, but I wanted to tell you that case where your deposition was taken as our expert witness um, recently settled. And I think it settled in large part because of, you know, we had you as an expert and your deposition testimony. So I don't know if, you know, Edna had told you that, but I just wanted to let you know. Oh, wow. Uh, in fact, I just... <laughs> Yesterday received a huge box with all the material that you had sent me for that deposition. And so I didn't know why it came back to me, but it came back to me. I was expecting a copy of the deposition so I could, you know, because we have to go through it within 30 days 
to make any changes. And so I was waiting for that. No, I'm glad that it, uh, I'm very happy that it settled. The, uh, it was a tough, it was a very tough uh, deposition. The, um, the county council really tried to get to me uh, many, many times and from many different directions. And, you know, she tried to confuse me and all that. And I, I did, did my best, but uh, I am very happy that that settled. Good, good. Very good. You know, I told the, the audience earlier that we use you as a consultant in juvenile dependency cases and in civil rights cases. So in case some of the listeners, be they uh, family members, parents, or other attorneys, why don't you give your name and all of your contact information so that they can contact you and use your services if they need them? Sure. Uh, well, the, the <clears throat> excuse me. The website is pegconsultants.org, pegconsultants.org. Uh, my phone number is 951-236-2379. And, in fact, I have picked up a couple, well, several clients from uh, your listeners. So I'm very appreciative of you uh, allowing me to uh, be a guest on your show. Oh, that's one of the purposes. I'm, I'm willing. I want people to uh, know that you exist, that your services exist, and that they can hire you or folks like you to help them in their fight against CPS. Did you give your uh, telephone number, Terry? Yes, it's nine five one two three six two three seven nine, and that goes directly to me and. Actually, I've gotten calls as far away as Hawaii and Virginia. So you have a very wide audience, Vince. You know, that's one of the things when you have an Internet radio show versus a what they call a celestial radio show. On the Internet, there's no geographic limitations. People can listen to you all over the world, all over the country. You know, I did a, a radio show once in L.A. on KABC radio, which is, you know, a big-time um, radio station, but it had a very limited, you know, geographic location for listeners. It was, you know, it was just basically the Southern California area. But when I do this, this particular radio show, it's, you know, on the Internet. So we're live worldwide and, you know, people can listen on any device. So, to happen, you know, we happen to get people listening, you know, from all over the country. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Terry, on Monday, on Monday evening, you messaged me about a case in Ventura. Tell me about what's going on there. Okay, this is a this is a very interesting um, call that I did. Um, a family that I worked with, uh, and that's the impetus for for what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, it appeared that uh, someone made a phone call to the hotline on this family, and uh, they called me up and they wanted to know because this was a 
nice family, and they they were concerned about how to handle the social worker and and all that. And and I spent you know maybe an, an hour, an hour and a half talking with them and uh, giving them some pointers and some advice and you know making sure they understood their rights um, because social workers will not inform people of their rights when they're talking to them first. So uh, they called me back after the social worker had, had done her investigation and um, everything was fine, except the social worker tried to get them to sign this, this release form. It's a general release form. And I don't know why they're doing that. We never, in Riverside County, we didn't do that unless we were actually looking for something. But they declined. Um, but it, it seemed that um, just prior to the uh, case closing, uh, they got another referral. Someone else called in. And it's a small, it's a small county. And where they live, the area they live is very small. Everybody kind of knows everybody. So they definitely figured out who called. And uh, it appears that it was uh, a friend of their child. And she happens to be, works for Ventura County Child Protective Services. And um, it was it was interesting the the, the original um, the original referral had to do with nonsense, um, but they went out and investigated and found nothing. And again, just before they were going to close it, this same person made another referral, which keeps the which actually what it does is. If you have 30 days to do your, your investigation, if you get another referral while that case is open, even if it's just ready to be closed, it sets up another 30 days. So it just seemed very odd as to the nature of the uh, allegations, the second allegations. So I just instructed them to um, just talk to the social worker and ask them what the status was um, and go from there. You know, the social worker could turn around and say, okay, this is really silly. Um, we're going to just close it. I haven't heard back from them. So, and I think they may be listening today. So, you know, give me a call later or next week and uh, let me know what's going on with that. But um, that happens this, this incident happens all the time, and um, people can call in the hotline. I'm going to go over some of the policy um, so people understand who can call in, what they can say, and, and all that, because if you know the policy and you understand how intake works, you're probably better off when the social worker comes because you know the, the, the system. And I think knowing the system it gives, you, gives you a benefit, gives you a, uh, a leg up on the social worker because they 
figure you don't know what the laws are. Right, right. Well, tell us. Let's hear the policies. Okay. So first I want to talk about uh, structured decision-making. And that is, uh, well, I'm just going to read it because it it says it all here. Uh, Structured decision-making, which is called SDM, Model for Child Protection assists agencies and workers in meeting their goals to promote the ongoing safety and well-being of children. This evidence and research-based system identifies the key points in the life of a child welfare case and uses structured assessments to improve the consistency and validity of each decision. The SDM model additionally includes clearly defined service standards, mechanisms for timely reassessments, methods for measuring workload, and mechanisms for ensuring accountability and quality control. This model consists of several assessments that help agencies work to reduce subsequent harm to children and to expedite permanency. Well, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read the um, one for intake. The screening selection of the intake assessment helps the child abuse hotline worker determine if the current report requires a child protective services investigation response. So they use this, they use this when people call in to figure out whether or not they're going to go out. The response priority section helps workers determine how swiftly an investigation must be initiated for those reports accepted for investigation. So that means if someone is actually harming a child or the child is in immediate danger, there's a section of the the structured decision-making to point that out so they can figure out the time frame for investigations. In Riverside County, we had immediates um, and, and 10 days, which meant late, went out within 10 days. In L.A. County, I think they have a immediate a three-day or a five-day and a 10-day. So each county does it a little bit different. Now, I pulled up the policies for L.A. County for their hotline call. So uh, for anybody's information who lives in L.A. County, their policies and procedures um, are online. So you can go online and pull them up. There's certain things you can't see that are only for social workers for L.A. County, but the majority of it is for anybody to read, and I would suggest people kind of read a little bit so they can understand the policies because I'll tell you, social workers don't always follow policy and procedure. So, okay, so call intake. In Riverside County, we have a special place in uh, the call call center um, for all the calls, it's open 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, and that's 
basically if you can't if you have to call 911 for cops then you can do that but if you want to call for for children that's the hotline number so all requests for child protective services on new or existing cases are directed to the child protective hotline for initial assessment these referrals involve allegations of suspected child abuse neglect exploitation and may be received by telephone in writing or in person in addition to receiving reports of alleged child abuse uh, they also will answer community questions now I want you this this is what I um, just highlighted although the Cal Center receives the majority of its referrals from agencies and persons outside the agency any employee of the agency who within the scope of his or her employment observes or receives a report of abuse neglect caretaker absence incapacity or exploitation from a source other than the call center must call the call center to make a referral I've highlighted that because this this is what happens the call center must identify the type of call um, which constitutes proper uh, child abuse referral pursuant to the laws of the uh, structured decision-making so they use this this um, structured decision-making um, as a tool it's reliable and it's been validated which means it's it's a tool that actually has been proven to work so for any new or incident of an open case immediate consultation review of new incidents must occur to determine if a new allegation on an open case as opposed to a case management or safety assessment issue the call center will generate a referral when a new allegation or conduct on an open case refers specifically to a new incident of abuse or neglect that meets the standards in the Child Abuse Reporting Act. All new allegations on an open case must be reported to the call center by regional staff for tracking and cross-port purposes. It's interesting on this case I was talking about from Ventura County, the timing. Um, when I was a worker, this was thing. This this sort of thing happened. Um, I'll, I'll I'll talk about this one case and I'll go back to the uh, document. I had a case. The lady lived in Beaumont. California she was an attorney I don't know what kind of attorney she was divorced they had one child the divorce was anything but amicable uh, every time the father would pick up the uh, child and take the child on, on a visit um, when the child returned she would call the hotline and uh, report incidences of abuse on, on his behalf. Uh, 
we went out, talked to her, looked at everything, did a really thorough investigation, talked to the dad, even ran the dad's, you know, criminal background and all that. And I closed it unfounded. About three weeks later, the, 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 late, the mom called in again. And it was assigned to me. I went back out. I talked to her again. I talked to the child. There was absolutely nothing. I talked to the father, of course. And I closed it. About four weeks later, we got another call. I went back out, and I told the mom, I said, this is ridiculous. This is, you're calling in. It's unfounded. You're wasting our time. And, in fact, if you call again, I'm going to take your child for emotional abuse because you're putting this child through these investigations where I'm sitting down and I'm talking to her and interviewing her three times, which means about maybe an hour and a half total um, for nothing. Um, And the funny thing is that she called again. It wasn't assigned to me. It was assigned to someone else in my unit. And that social worker actually took the child. Now, later the mom sued me and the other social worker in the county. Of course, nothing happened because I was never contacted. I just got things saying that there was a suit and all that, but uh, it never went anywhere. Um, I, I've had other calls, cases. It's family members will do this to one another. It's it's ridiculous. It's a waste of time. Um, but unfortunately, the hotline is set up that people can make anonymous calls. So let me go back to um, companion referrals. And this is the sec- what they what we used to call secondary referrals. Companion referrals can be created by the call center only, only, here's the key, and I want you to, I'm gonna reread this and I want everybody to listen to this. Companion referrals will be created by the call center only when there is reasonable suspicion, keyword reasonable, of child abuse or neglect regarding the other children living in the home. Now, what is reasonable? <laughs> That's the key word. Most of the time, I would look at it and go, they're not reasonable. But know that. So when they come with the allegations, you can say, well, you know, that's kind of silly. That doesn't really... That's your argument, whether it's reasonable or not. Also, if a call comes in on a family and it's particular to one child, that doesn't mean that all the children in the home are going to be under investigation. Now, that's a little different than Riverside County because if a family was under investigation, all the children that lived in the home were under the same umbrella. So that's L.A. County. Um, Okay. Classifying the allegations. 
Okay, so we got reasonable. We got reasonable suspicion. Mm -hmm. Right. Allegations of child... Pardon me? No, no, no. I was saying right. Okay. Allegations of child abuse fall under specific criminal and or civil codes. Now, when I worked for Riverside County, we didn't explicitly... um, uh, use those codes or refer to the to the actual uh, law, uh, penal codes, California penal codes. Now they do. Um, so there are actual statutes and penal codes for each uh, for child abuse. Um, okay, let's see. I'm going to read you a list of allegations that do not constitute appropriate child abuse referrals and should be evaluated out. Evaluated out means that it does not rise to reasonable suspicion. Okay. Age. No child in the home under 18 years old. Emancipated minor. Victim is an emancipated minor, and no siblings or other children at risk, abuse, and neglect. Mutual fight between children where parent, guardian, caretaker take appropriate action, and no unreasonable force was used. Okay, these are all reasons not to. Out-of-home abuse, abuse by persons not living in the child's home where parents have taken appropriate action to protect the child. School attendance problems. Now, in California, they have the School Attendance Review Board, which I sat on for a couple different school districts. Um, They do have social workers there. Um, They do discuss um, a lot of truancy. But the truth is that the law... Um, doesn't have much teeth in it. Okay. Pregnancy. Okay, this is a big one. Pregnancy in and of itself of a youth over 14 with no other information provided or voluntary non-exploited sex between teenagers under 18. Not more than two years apart in age. And neither child is younger than 14. Now, in Riverside, well, in California, we have a um, very large Hispanic community, and a lot of these, a lot of the families are still carry um, the traditions um, and culture uh, that goes way back. And I actually had two uh, instances of having to go out on cases like this. Um, now, the father was a couple years older, so it did meet the reasonable um, requirement. But when you go in and you talk with these families, it's so important to understand the cultural differences because once I started talking and, uh, and, and getting to understand the family and what they were doing and how they were supporting the couple and and all that, there was, you know, it was, there was nothing there. But 
you have to understand some of the cultural differences. Um, head life. I'm not going to go in with all of that. Teen parent conflict. <laughs> We've gotten calls where they say, come pick up my kid. I can't stand them. We can't do that. Uh, here's one for, and I, this is one that people ask, ask me all the time. Reasonable and age-appropriate spanking to the buttocks where there is no if no evidence of serious physical injury. It's okay to spank your child. Do not leave any marks. Do not leave, do not use any implements such as a spoon or anything else because the physics of it is that if you whip, hit someone with something that you're holding, the actual extension of that causes more force. Now, so that's, that's what I used to tell them. Smack them on the back. You know, if I don't see bruises, if I don't see any, any, any red or anything like that, go ahead. You know, because people right now are really, really afraid to physically discipline their children. Um, so and they, that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of they discipline their children. CPS is going to come and take their kid. You can spank your kid. Um, now this one is is um, a hot topic right now because of the uh, serious uh, measles outbreak. So that you cannot, they cannot take a case or for religious objection to medical treatment unless necessary to protect the child from suffering serious physical and harm or illness. Um, a big one. I don't know if they're going to be changing things with with the immunizations, but if you don't immunize your child and um, they they can't uh, they just they can't make a referral. Um, runaway teenagers. We're not in the we're not in the search and rescue of of runaway teenagers, um, poverty, lack of shelter. We have a, uh, a horrendous, horrendous, horrendous um, homeless problem. Um, you cannot remove children for lack of uh, structure, uh, shelter, um, any of that, uh, as long as the parents are making a reasonable effort to take care of these kids. You know, and it's sad because we I've seen many shows where we have kids going to school who live on Skid Row, you know, and that's just an off subject. Um, reporters who are reporting specific incidents already investigated. Uh, so, in other words, if I'm investing sexual abuse and someone calls in and saying the child was sexually abused, we already know that. We're, we, we're working on that. Um, here's another one. A child, I'm going to just, I'm going to read the whole thing. A child exhibiting mental health problems with no allegations that a parent is unwilling or incapable providing care for the child. 
Um, wow, the time's really gone. I haven't even got into this. Um, latchkey children. Uh, let's see. Development delayed, physically handicapped, or any other special needs or medical needs. Additionally, there is no report that there is a chronic lack of supervision. And then child custody issues. So those are the things that they can't do. <laughs> and I just noticed the time is, is so I I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to come back and really go through all this next week because I think it's really important people to know now the actual uh, procedure for this. Right. Okay. Well we'll have you call in next week at eight thirty. And we'll continue it. And, uh, you know, while you were talking, it reminded me of something that I wanted to tell you. I'm uh, doing a trial in three weeks in Humboldt County uh, up north at the Oregon border. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was talking to my client last night about some of the things, and we'd like you to review the case so please message oh. me later on today to remind you to send you the information because we want to retain you to uh, review the case. And we'll talk to you next week, next Saturday at 8.30 a.m. Okay? Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, we've come to the end of the show. Hello, this is attorney Vince Davis. Today I will be replaying one of my most popular shows. I'll be back next I pushed the wrong button, obviously. Um, we'll see you next week on the radio at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And, of course, we'll have Terry back next week at 8.30 so he can finish explaining to us regarding these detention hearings and these investigations. Have a great weekend.